My guest today is Christina Flack. She is the CEO of Pretty Girl Makeup. Oh, I can't wait to hear about that. <laughs> Thank you for having me, Carol. <laughs> Christina has also had numerous blows in her life that has left her at various times feeling helpless. For example, one Christmas morning, she woke up to the trauma of losing her baby. I, I just reading that made my heart just ache. I can't imagine going through that. Yeah, another very devastating. Another was when she got the news that her husband was about to die. This is a story that we are going to hear today. And she has an incredible one of loss, survival, and titanic success thank you so much for tuning in today to never ever give up hope have you ever felt like giving up quitting throwing in the towel welcome to never ever give up hope featuring carol graham she's an author health coach and motivational speaker backed into a corner multiple times in her life Carol shares with you stories on how she overcame some of the toughest obstacles a person can go through in life, but refused to give up hope. Rather than admit defeat, an opportunity was presented, and it involves each and every one of you. Carol will feature spectacular guests who will share their messages of hope, encouragement, and their inspiration to prove why life's adversities only make you stronger. And now, welcoming the host of the show, here's Carol Graham. With me today, I have Christina Flack. Now, Christina, you have had a huge story, and I hope that we can fit it all in for our listeners. So we're going to do the best we can, right? Yes. To begin, Thank you for having me. You bet. I'm so excited. Me you're too. A, you're a celebrity. <laughs> oh, hardly. <laughs> you are the CEO of Pretty Girl Makeup, which I mentioned at the top of the show. You're also a celebrity makeup artist, which you have to share a little bit about that with our listeners, and you are a fashion commentator. So before we get into your story, which is going to be so encouraging and uplifting for our listeners, share a little bit about your list of credentials and accomplishments. Well, I am, as you said, the CEO of Pretty Girl Makeup. Um, I started that in 1999. I was um, a makeup artist. I was an image consultant and a personal shopper. And I was always doing makeup for friends and family. Uh, And then I created my line. I worked with a chemist. Um, I formulated it with a chemist and uh, the the texture. And then, you know, from there it went to, you know, getting the colors you know, I'm self-funded. Um, and I wanted, you know, I had a limited amount of money to spend, you know, when I first started my company. So I wanted all the colors to, I started with seven colors and I wanted them to look good on all different skin tones. So it took so much longer than I had anticipated. I thought it was going to take, you know, a few days and it would be out in the world (laughs) and I'd make a billion dollars and that would be that. And, uh, I was, you know, very mistaken, but, <clears throat> it's been an interesting process. And I think one of the things that I've learned 
one of my clients is a celebrity chef named Tyler Florence. And, you know, he's a CEO as well. And we were just kind of commiserating one day when we were on a shoot. And I just said, oh my gosh, everything takes so much longer and is so much harder and more expensive than, you know, I thought. And he said, you know, if everyone, I, I want to quote him per, properly because it was perfect. He said, if everyone, you know, if it, this was so easy, everyone would do it. And, you know, so it, it's better that we don't know because you would miss right, the process right, and, you, right. and you wouldn't do it. Right. And, and you need, we need to do these things. So it's, I think if we can go into any new project or, you know, anything in life, just knowing like, you know, it, the universe is going to have it do whatever it's going to do and just be okay with that, with the process and however long it takes and to enjoy every moment of it. What about some of your other accomplishments that you've uh, like some of these celebrities possibly just give us a little bit of a, a, a peek into that part. Okay, well, I am represented by artist services in San Francisco, Los Angeles and New York. Uh, my agent's name is Brandy Moore, and she's fantastic. Uh, I just uh, finished uh, the first season of Kitchen Talk with Isaiah Washington in Los Angeles this right before we uh, the coronavirus epidemic started and the shut-in. So that was a lot of fun. Uh, it's a talk show, but it's it, it's so perfect because how many times are we in the kitchen uh, when we have people over for dinner and everyone's in there having great conversation? And, and you know, as hosts, we want them to sit in the beautiful living room or dining room, but the, the juicy conversations happen in the kitchen while you're cooking. So that's what the, the show's about. It's going to be airing on Fox Nation uh, in June. It was supposed to air this month, but they've changed it. Um, so I'm really excited about that. I do all kinds of different things. I work with athletes. I work with politicians. I work with models, um, actors, uh, chefs. I work with the Food Network quite a bit. Um, I live outside of San Francisco near Napa. So when people, when the chefs come out from from wherever to go to Napa to do a project, I, that's usually my clients. I've worked with you know, CNN, NBC, ABC, Fox, I, you know, I've worked with Dana Perino, uh, Condoleezza Rice, Tucker Carlson, um, uh, Jalen Brown, Journey, Metallica, um, Gucci, Louis Vuitton. It's, it's such an interesting spectrum of, of different people that I've had the opportunity to work with. And it's so much fun uh, being a makeup artist and a groomer. That's what you call, um, a makeup artist for men is a groomer. Uh, it's I. It's always different. You go somewhere new. You meet incredibly interesting people, um, and it's it it's never boring. It's always interesting. It's a little intense sometimes. Uh, it's not quite as glamorous as as a lot of people seem to think it is. You know, they think you're working with celebrities, so it's just fun all the time. But it's uh, you're on your feet and you're taking care of that person for whatever time you're with them. So, you know, I, part of my job as a makeup artist is to make sure that my client looks good, obviously, but feels good, that they're in a happy, good mood, because the camera can see if you're in a bad mood, even if you're pretending you're not, the camera notices. So, <clears throat> pardon me. So it's really important that I make sure to let the client, um, you know, speak. If they want to talk, I, you know, I let them, or if they want to talk about my life or what's going on in the world, or sometimes I have to gauge their mood and sometimes they just need quiet and they want to get into like a nice uh, meditative place before they go out. So I have to read each client before, 
you know, within like a minute of meeting them of, of what I have to do to get them to look and feel their best. Well, I had about 30 questions while you were talking. <laughs> I'm, I'm waiting. I can't wait to they say, You know, you, you covered a lot of area. And what I appreciate is what you said about the other side. It is not just glamour. You're working hard. And you worked hard for what you've achieved, for what you've accomplished. And you continue to work hard. That's one point. Another point is, is that you want to make your client feel comfortable. And my guess is you're just that kind of person. And another reason why you are so successful, because you understand the needs your client have, you want them to feel comfortable, and I know you have a sense of humor, and so that would just be an attribute as well. So thank you for sharing that. I really, <laughs> really appreciate that. Thank yes, you. So tell us now, we got it. where did this start? In You had to have an interest when you were a little girl took you into the glamour industry. Can you start with your childhood a little bit and share that? Absolutely. So when I was growing up, I grew up in California. Um, I have a sister and three chosen brothers. Um, my mom got um, brain cancer when I was about eight years old and she had a 1% oh. chance to live one year and she um, thankfully lived 13 years, but you know, the quality of her life wasn't quite so fabulous. Um, at that time, you know, they gave it an enormous amount of radiation and chemotherapy. So she, my childhood, like memories I have of my mother, who was incredibly beautiful. She was very talented. She was a photographer and she designed clothes and she was just a really creative, amazing human uh, person. She just, you know, she could cook. She was a gourmet cook. She was fabulous. She, her skin started, you know, just, she looked discolored or, or, and her hair fell out. She just did not look as beautiful as she, as she was before she got cancer. And so I remember she was going out on a date with my father and I said, Oh mom, let me um, do your makeup. Let me help you get ready. And I, so that was the first, my mom was my first client. I remember doing <laughs> her makeup and I just thought, Oh my gosh, like she looks so different. I didn't even know I had any makeup skills actually. Wow. I, I just got her, you know, her foundation and concealer and moisturizer and, you know, mascara. And I just, you know, did a makeover over on her. And it was so what, what I loved seeing obviously was the transformation of how she looked, but also the transformation of how she felt. And I think Good that point. was really um, exciting. And um, it stuck with me. I just remember feeling I, I like making people look and feel good. And you know, I'm a mother of five. I, I I like to tend to people. I guess that's what I would call it. I am a tender. I like to spoil people. I like to feed them and, uh, you know, make them feel good. And so this is the perfect job for me being a makeup artist. <laughs> so I, I enjoy that. And I, I think if you enjoy, I, I tell my children all the time, you know, whatever you love doing, figure out how to get paid. And then once you do that, then figure <laughs> out where you want to work. So I've been really lucky uh, being a makeup artist. You know, I get to work in, you know, LA, New York, San Francisco. I've been flown down to Cabo, um, you know, to do a campaign for a swimsuit company. And so I get, and I've gone to Hawaii for work. I've been so lucky being able to do what I love and get paid really well, but also to meet the just the most extraordinary people that I would normally not meet in my everyday life. So it's, it's really been a, a blessing. And um, I'm so grateful for that. So my children, my daughter Melania lives in London. Uh, she is finishing up at Central St. Martin's. Uh, she's a fashion designer. 
My daughter Rose uh, graduated two years ago from NYU Film School, and she's a screenwriter. She's been working on a TV show in LA. Uh, my son Nikolai's in like a self-taught musician, and he's a golfer. He's in college. He wants to turn pro. And um, my son Ben is in seventh grade, and he loves you know basketball, and he's very creative as well. And so I think they've they've you know I and it was so interesting. My daughter Rose had said to me one time when I was giving one of my a supposedly famous uh, talks on drugs and alcohol and not to do them and drink green juice and exercise. Um, she said, you know, mom, your lectures were really lame and useless. And I was <laughs> a bit taken back and offended. And I said, what do you mean, Rose? And she said, you know, your example was so much more profound right. and, and left so much more of an impression of how you treat people, your work ethic, how you, we've never seen you drunk or high. Um, and that really surprised me because I didn't even realize how important as a, as a parent or, you know, as a friend or whatever, that, that what you, how you live your life really does matter and it, and people notice it. And so I'm so grateful that my children have had that. I'm thank goodness that I've set that example. I didn't even know I did, but evidently I did. So I'm, I'm happy about that. When I had my first child in daycare. I probably learned more about rearing children from that teacher than anyone else. And she said, children only need three things. Example, example, example. Oh my gosh, that is so true. And I have never forgotten that. I just get goosebumps when I was- Yeah, I like that. Yeah. That is really good advice. I and mean, I- I didn't even realize how important that is, but exactly. that is perfect. And I'm going to steal that from you. Oh, you, well, you're not stealing <laughs> it from me. <laughs> well, it's, uh, that's fantastic. And I, I think it's, it's true. It's very true. So when you just said that, that all came rushing back to when my 40-year-old was just a baby. And, mm -hmm. and she said that. And I never, obviously, never forgot that. And now you are saying it in other words. And it still carries that same impact. Kids watch you. And so, aside from the rest of your story and all your accomplishments and everything else, you can pat yourself on the back and you say, I did the best I could. And any parent, if they can say that, wow. So, thank you for that. Now we can end the interview. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. anyway, well, I thank you so much for sharing that. Okay, so now let's let's talk a little bit about some of the trauma in your life because you certainly have experienced a lot. And I think that that is one of the reasons with your children watching that example of you and how you went through what you went through speaks much louder than anything you could ever tell them. So the first thing I'd like you to share is Christmas morning. 2006. Okay, so um, in 2000, August of 2006, I was blessed to have twin little boys, uh, Ben and Bo, and they are just, they were the cutest little dumplings. They're blonde hair, blue eyed little angels. Um, four and a half months later, on Christmas Day, we woke up to open presents and my twins were for once quiet first thing in the morning. So we started opening presents. And I, uh, said to my daughter, Rose, oh, I, I heard one of them crying. And I said, oh, go grab one of the babies and bring them out. And and then Mitch, my ex-husband, um, well, my husband at the time, um, went in to get 
to get Bo. Unfortunately, Bo was not was not responsive. And so oh, I, wow. you know, I I grabbed the baby from him, started doing mouth to mouth and calling 911. And everyone's looking like, oh my gosh, what's going on? And the ambulance came and took Bo away. And then the police came. They took me over to the hospital and Bo was on life support. I had to take him off and he had passed away from SIDS. And it was it was the most insane, crazy, tragic day ever. I couldn't even, I didn't even know what to do. Like, oh, do I put the roast in the oven or I don't need, I, I didn't even know, like I couldn't even grasp the no. magnitude of how horrible that feeling was of that day. You know, my mother had passed away, you know, when I was in my twenties and then Bo passes away and I was 40 and I just was, I, I, I couldn't even believe, I thought, how could God do this to me? Because I have always tried to be a good girl and a good person. And, and like, how could someone put this absolute obliterating pain in my life and my family's life? I remember, you know, they had prescribed me some sleeping pills because it was really hard for me to sleep after that. And I started just kind of taking them in the day because heart hurts so much. And that went on for about uh, a month or so. And I remember my girlfriends, they kind of came to me and said, okay, enough's enough with this. You don't know how to take pills. You know, this isn't you. So stop, like enough, like get it together. You have these other kids, you're, you have a husband, like, and I said, you know what, you're right. I'm, I'm so, I'm sorry. And I, I, you know, I need to do change who I go back to who I am. So I started praying and meditating and you know, get being disciplined again, I'm very disciplined. And um, unfortunately, my marriage ended, you know, bow passing, but my ex husband and I are very close. We're still a, we're still a family. I know that probably annoys him, but <laughs> we're, we're a family. Still. We co-parent. Um, we joke around. I'll jokingly say to him, like, you know, watch out. I'm going to, we're going to renew our vows. I'm going to move back here. And we joke about that. But so I got divorced and that was hard. And, and just trying to deal with, with Bo passing and, and, and healing my children's heart. I, you know, I wasn't myself. I, even if when I got back to, you know, getting on my schedule of, of my disciplined life and, I wasn't, my heart was still very shattered. And I, um, I started a garden at the Edna McGuire school in Mill Valley with my friend, Lisa Zimmer, who at the time was the principal. And I wanted, I didn't want people to forget Bo, um, because it happens so often people don't know how to deal with death. They don't know how to deal, especially with a baby dying. My gosh. Um, they want to forget about it. And I didn't want him to be forgotten. He's such a special little soul. And, um, I, you know, I didn't want him forgotten. So I feel that education is such an important part of life um, for children, obviously, but I also feel that um, a garden and learning to eat well, and it starts, you know, getting people to eat vegetables and stuff isn't always easy with children, but they seem to want to do it if they grow it or if they pick it or Good they, point. Yes. you know, so yes. I wanted them to have that experience. So we started this garden. Um, we raised a bunch of money and we named it after Bo. So it's called the Bo uh, Friedman Outdoor uh, Classroom. And it's there's chickens and fruit trees and, you know, there's all these different vegetables and it's just a beautiful experience. And then um, one of my brothers is on the board of a school called the Northern Light School in Oakland, California. And I had gone that December, right before Christmas, before Bo passed, I had gone there to do a teddy bear tea because my kids are blessed enough that 
you know, every Christmas we go into San Francisco to the Fairmont and we do this beautiful tea party where we decorate teddy bears and gingerbreads and drink hot chocolate and tea. And it's my kids to this day love doing that. We still are doing this and they're grown up. Oh. I think we've added champagne to it now with the tea, <laughs> but we still have that special time. And so I had contacted a company and had a bunch of teddy bears donated and I called the bakery and got, you know, all these gingerbread and I bought, got all my girlfriends together and our children. And we went over and had the most beautiful day decorating and laughing and just kind of celebrating the holiday uh, with these, with these amazing students at the Northern Lights School. Uh, it's a private school for minority children predominantly. Um, we have a 98% success rate of them going on to college and graduating and doing extraordinary things because of Michelle Lewis and her whole amazing staff. School isn't funded by the government, so it relies solely upon grants and donations. And Vita Blue's on the board. He was a baseball player back in the day, and he does a celebrity golf tournament. And so I started a fund there for Bo. It's called the Baby Bo Fund. And um, this past October, uh, Ben, Bo's twin, who's 13, he raised $35,500 for his brother's fund. And I'm incredibly proud of that for a number of reasons, obviously, because, you know, Ben's so young, but, you know, Ben is so humble and and doesn't even realize how amazing it is. But the reality is because of what Ben does every year, it's his fourth year doing this. And he's raised over, I think, probably $100,000. It is allowing three kids with that $35,000 to go to school for, for a private school uh, for a year. And, you know, that really changes, you know, lives and families and the community and the world. So I, I feel so good about that. And it's amazing, you know, for Ben at such a young age to have that experience. So I think that's just going to be part of his life, you know, his lifestyle and how he conducts himself moving forward of, of giving back and, and, and helping others that are less fortunate. And again, live by example. This is exactly what you exactly. did. Exactly. Now, you went through already the loss of your mother and then the loss of your baby. Obviously, you pulled up your bootstraps. You turned your life around. You began to accomplish, you know, more of your dreams, etc. And then in 2010, you met the love of your life. I did. I did. I met the love of my life, Ken Flack. Yes. He was a tennis player. He was a professional tennis player back in the 80s and 90s. Uh, he and his partner, Rob Seguso, were number one in the world. Uh, they were on the Davis Cup team. They won a gold medal in Seoul, won Wimbledon, US Open. Uh, they were they were extraordinary. And they were just so much fun to watch. So I actually had, I played tennis as a junior and, I, and in college. And Ken Flack was my crush growing up. I had a poster <laughs> on my wall and I just thought he was Aww. so horrible and funny. And uh, we had we had mutual friends and we met on Facebook, funny enough. And oh my uh, goodness. yeah, he I had posted something and he had commented on it and I thought, oh my God, my crush. <laughs> so excited. So he and I became uh, pen pals. We just started writing each other emails like for a year and a half all the time. And I would always say at the end, like, hey, you know, maybe give me a call. I'm much funnier, at least I think I am, on the phone than than writing. He he wrote so beautifully. He was just, he really had an incredible wit. Um, and so we were friends for a year and a half. And then uh, one day I said, I was going to Nashville. My daughter's godfather uh, 
was having a surprise birthday party and uh, I knew Ken had coached at Vanderbilt uh, and I knew his, his kids live there. So I said, Hey, I'm going to a party. Do you want to come with me? But you know, you'd have to talk. So I don't know if you can handle that. So he said, well, he would call me woman friend at that time. He said, Hey, woman friend. Yes, I will. Um, I'm going to call you tomorrow. And I'm like, Oh, here we go. And I didn't think he would, but he did. We were on the phone for five hours and it was just effortless. We just chatted and chatted and chatted and it was so much fun. And I remember the next day he called back and said, this is going to sound really crazy, but I miss you. And I don't even know how that's possible. I've never even seen your face. So um, can I come see you? And I said, yes, of course. Like, you know, come out. And uh, two times he he was going to come and then he didn't. And then I just, and then finally it was like around uh, my birthday and Valentine's day. And he said, okay, I know I've like blown it with you, but will you please give me one more chance? Can you fly to St. Louis for Valentine's day and your birthday? And then I'll go to that party with you in Nashville. And I said, you know, I really don't want to reward your good behavior. I'm going to go on a run with my best friend, Lily, and I'm going to uh, think about it and I'll get back to you. So we went on a, Lily and I went on a run and, and she just said, what are you doing with this guy? He's famous. And like, this is ridiculous. And I said, I don't know. I've got a feeling. I think, I think he's my person to quote uh, Christina on uh, Grey's Anatomy. He was, I knew it. And so um, I, I called him and I said, all right, I'll fly out there and um, I'll, I'll, I'm going to know in five seconds whether he is my person yeah. or not. And he was, he was my person. And we got married in six weeks after the first time we laid eyes on each other. What a great romantic story. Oh my it goodness. Really was. <laughs> it really, it really, was. really was. Now it what really happened was. eight years later? Oh, eight years later, uh, Ken got a uh, cold. He got a cold, which turned to bronchitis and then turned to pneumonia. Um, we were, um, our medical group was uh, Kaiser Permanente here in, uh, in California. And their protocol is to, you know, call into an advice nurse, and then they determine whether you see a doctor or not, they've fitted into they, they just don't want you to see doctors because it costs them more money. So they uh, chose not to see Ken. And uh, his doctor, Dr. John Colbertson, had called him and said, oh, you just have a cold. You need a cough medicine with codeine and an inhaler and no antibiotic. And he asked, are you sure no antibiotic? Because uh, one of my best friends is a, a Harvard doctor. So I'm convinced, you know, I have a doctor's degree as well. I said, you for sure need an antibiotic. And he said, no, the doctor says I don't. And I said, hmm, that seems a little odd. So to make a very long story short, 12 hours later, Ken started spitting up blood I rushed him to the Kaiser Permanente uh, Hospital in San Rafael, California, to, uh, and he walked in. Uh, they tried to stabilize his breathing with three different types of oxygen, and they couldn't. They told me he were they were going to intubate him to clear out his lungs, and I thought, okay, well, that sounds that makes sense. I did. They did not tell me that intubation was actually life support. So that was the last time that my husband and I spoke to each other, which is so infuriating to me. Uh, Ken was on life support. He became septic. They tested him for sepsis, but didn't give him still an antibiotic. His arms and legs started turning black. And so I brought in a specialist and said, okay, what are we going to do about, I called it discoloration, even though they were turning black. Um, they said, well, <clears throat> if he survives, we will have to amputate his arms and legs. And I just said, that's it. Forget it. Like, there's no way that I would allow my husband who loves golf and his children and fixing things around the house to 
have no arms and legs. So anyway, we sadly, that was on uh, Wednesday, we spoke to the doctor. Thursday, I took him to the emergency. By Monday, that's what had happened. We decided to take him off life support and he passed away in literally one minute. And it was, it was horrible. It was horrible for our children. It's horrible for me, obviously. Um, it's a horrible for the world. He was an amazing person and, and the world doesn't get to enjoy him anymore. So after he passed from, you know, complications of sepsis, the, <clears throat> pardon me, the Sepsis Alliance contacted me and asked if um, I would be willing to raise awareness for sepsis, you know, using Ken's likeness and name. And um, I, I agreed to that because for me, like I did with, you know, dealing with Bo's passing, you know, for me, it felt better to be helping others and, and doing something positive. But I also wanted Ken to be remembered as such a great person. I didn't want him forgotten. I started, you know, doing interviews like this and, and doing TV. And I started another uh, educational fund at the Northern Light School in Ken's name. It's called the Ken Flack Foundation for, for, you know, kids, for more kids to, you know, have a private school experience that normally wouldn't. That's what I've been doing. Now, in hindsight, and I'm sure you've thought about this a hundred times, what could have occurred to have prevented this? His Kaiser Permanente should see their patients. They shouldn't allow their doctors to be prescribing anything over the phone without seeing them. So I wanted your listeners to also know that, you know, cough medicine with codeine, we all think, oh, goody, I've got the codeine, I'm going to fall asleep and wake up feeling better. Well, that's not always the case. It's a very dangerous drug because it, the codeine um, suppresses your breathing, it slows it down to the point that if you do have an infection and you don't have an antibiotic to counter it, the infection is going to grow at a rate that's pretty much like a wildfire that's unstoppable. That's what happened with Ken, um, sadly. So I, I really felt I don't want anyone to feel how I feel or how our children feel of, of the loss of Ken. It's, it's horrible. I miss him every minute of the day. And it's life's, the world isn't the same. He was my best friend. And um, it, it's so funny. I... I do these interviews all the time. I don't know why today's harder. That speaks volumes to the listeners as well, because you also have a passion to help others as a result of the pain that you went through. And yep. this is why I asked you specifically, you know, what could have been done. So whenever you're ready. Thank you. So what could have been done? He should have been seen, first of all. Um, I don't think any doctor should be prescribing or saying what you diagnosing anyone over the phone. I what I have learned is that you have to be your advocate. I thought I was fighting for Ken keeping him, you know, healthy, you know, with the doctors because I listened to them. You know, what I have learned now is get a second and third opinion. And if your gut tell like the, on that Wednesday, it should have been I shouldn't have to do this, but <clears throat> no one should have to do this, but we do have to do this. You have, if, if it doesn't seem right, demand a test, demand to be seen, go to the emergency. But you know, I trusted Dr. John Culbertson mm -hmm. and sadly, tragically, this has happened now. Ken died and it sucks. It's horrible. I would love to see change in the medical system. I would like everyone to be seen that needs to be seen. There are signs of sepsis that I was unaware of. And so that is another thing that your listeners can go to sepsis.org and they could see there's a, a, a little thing there called time. And what it stands for is 
T is for temperature. You could be, if you have sepsis, you can be either very hot or very cold. I is for infection. Um, you have some sort of infection in your body, whether it's a tooth infection or a cold or a cut, there's infection that is, you know, in your system, in your blood system. Sepsis is a, a an infection of the blood. What happens when you have an infection of the blood is it starts affecting your organs and they shut down. That's why sepsis is so incredibly deadly. Quarter of a million people die a year from sepsis. Whoopi Goldberg had sepsis and survived. I mean, you can survive sepsis if you are diagnosed um, in a timely way, if you have, if you get on the proper antibiotic. M is for mental decline. It's hard to kind of get them out of bed. It's hard. They're not really in their right mental state because it's affecting even your mind. And E is for excruciating pain. You know, I remember Ken saying, I think I'm, I feel like I'm dying because he was, he felt like he had glass in his chest and, and the infection was, it was, it was very painful. So the problem is with sepsis, it is not a forgiving disease. It doesn't give you 12 hours. It doesn't give you, oh, I'll wake up tomorrow and feel better. You're not going to wake up tomorrow is the reality. You are going to die. And so I tell people all the time, if you think you have any of these symptoms, quickly get to an emergency, demand a test, because even the doctors are like, well, you don't have all the symptoms, you might have one or two, just get the test. And in 20 minutes, you'll know whether you're septic or not. And if you are, you get on the right uh, antibiotic protocol, and you know, you'll survive. And what's been so fulfilling for me now is that I hear from people all the time via Facebook, um, you know, phone calls, email, text, you know, people asking me about sepsis or, or do you think I'm septic? And I just tell them, go to, you know, quickly get to the hospital. And I met um, this woman on Facebook. We had mutual friends. She had heard an interview I had done. She called me. I didn't know. And she said, I think my husband's septic. And I said, get him in the car quickly. And um, she did. And he was. Um, the, 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 at the hospital mm. and you know, she, she saved him. And I, I feel so great about that. Sadly, two years later, uh, last month, uh, this same gentleman um, passed away from sepsis. He got it again. And um, she called me and said, oh my God, I, I can't even believe this. Like uh, he died of sepsis. And it was weird because it was on Ken's day that Ken died two years later. So strange. Who's susceptible to it? You know what? Anyone. It can be babies. It could be t anyone. There is there is no age uh, limit with sepsis. It 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 doesn't care how old you are, who you are, or what you are. It will attack you if it can. The symptoms sound very similar to COVID nineteen. You know what? That's interesting. Yeah, they probably are. And I'm sure there's a lot of people getting COVID nineteen and passing from sepsis. I'm sure there's plenty of that too. I'm sure there's going to be a rise in, uh, you know, septic related deaths during this time as well, unfortunately. But you still, they still don't know how someone gets it. I thought that it was related to bacteria, like in from a hospital or something. Well, and most people get sepsis at a hospital. Right. Uh, okay. Um, because of all that, but it's usually people with a immu uh, compromised immune system. Okay. Okay. If you have some sort of infection in your body, it seems to grow. And, and, you know, if, um, like I said, or like I said previously about the, the cough medicine with codeine, if you have a compromised immune system and you have an infection and you have a, take a drug like cough medicine with codeine, that, that was the perfect storm of, of getting wow. sepsis. It's sepsis is just, it's a very ugly, ugly death. 
it's not pretty. I'll tell you that it was horrible to watch. And it was, you know, my husband was incredibly handsome and he got very bloated. The, he, they put him on an ECMO machine. The UCSF Benioff Hospital uh, came out with like 20 people with this ECMO machine. And what that basically is, is it pumps the blood for you to hopefully get your body to like clear itself of infection and heal itself up. It didn't work, sadly, uh, for Ken. But, you know, it's sepsis is really, it's it's real. And I just hope that people, you know, I I do these interviews because I want there to be dialogue. I want people yes, to yes. hear it. And I want them to say, like, hey, do you even know what sepsis is? Have right. you heard of it? Just so people can be aware of it. And I think if, you know, people are aware, then, you know, they're educated and they can know what to do. And they'll be less loss of life and, 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 you know, they won't be feeling what I feel because it's not, it doesn't feel good. You know, it's the world is a different place for me and my children now since he's gone. It, you know, he had such passion for life and he was so funny and witty and naughty and he was a million things. He was just an amazing soul. And I, uh, Sometimes I, I, you know what? It, I, so now since it's so funny how I am this makeup artist and CEO, and now I'm speaking about, you know, raising awareness for sepsis, but it's actually segued also into me speaking about grief because I've obviously dealt with grief with my mother and, and Bo and now Ken. And I knew that when Ken passed that I could not go down that hole again, that dark hole. Cause I knew it was even going to be worse this time. Um, I knew that I really had to keep it together. So I really renewed my faith in God. That first I was furious and angry and obliterated. My daughter had said to me, you know, mommy, we have to be grateful for the time we had with daddy. You know, we just have to be grateful for it. After Bo died, you were so not yourself. And he made you laugh again and smile. And it was so great. So I'm grateful for the eight years I had with Ken. You know, I am so grateful. I have learned that I went to my uh, my good friend, Eva Mann, took me to uh, grief camp at Canyon Ranch. And there was, I thought we were going to a spa to get massages and she lied to me, but it was good. <laughs> um, it was grief camp. And so uh, there was a, a woman speaker there named uh, Sher Dr. Uh, Rabbi Sherry Hirsch. She's a rabbi from Los Angeles. She had written a book called We Plan and God Laughs. And I had a plan that I had the career that I loved and my children were amazing and I was in love and happy and that was going to be that. And in one second, my life turned upside down and I had to decide whether I was going to be happy again, um, obviously still grieving, but trying to be happy. Happiness is a choice, or I could be miserable. And, you know, but I couldn't do that because I couldn't do that. To, I didn't want my kids to have that life. I want my kids to have healthy, happy, productive lives. Obviously, we've had this, tr these tragedies. But we also have to know what we're, you know, I have a million blessings in my life. I'm so grateful that I have a job that I love and these children, these four kids that are amazing and that I had Ken and like, I have so much to be thankful for. And so now people have a very hard time grieving. People either, either A, ignore it, B, wallow in it, or C, hopefully acknowledge it, but still live healthy, happy, productive lives. For me, it was 
the foundations or raising awareness or, you know, the garden. Obviously, everyone does it in their in their time frame that feels comfortable to them. But I feel that it is an easier way um, and a better, happier, more productive way if you can figure out what it is that you want to do to honor, you know, your loved one, what, you know, in whatever way you want to do that. And, 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 and to be thankful for the time that you had, not be pissed off and angry for the time you didn't have. I wake up oftentimes and I am like, oh, I don't want to wake up and I don't want to do this. And then I'm like, okay, stop. Be thankful for like right this minute. Think of three things you're thankful for. And I do. And um, I get up and I start my day and I turn on some music. I'll go for a run. I'll do something to just get my head back on track. And believe me, I have so many moments and hours and days where I'm in a bad mood or sad. And it's so funny. My friends make fun of me. They're like, you don't know how to be in a bad mood. Like it feels very foreign to me. So I try to just stay in a in a happy place. I acknowledge the dark and the sadness, but I really try to get myself out of that mood, whether it be going on a run or yoga or music or whatever, ice cream, I don't know, whatever it is, take a hot bath. That's what we have to figure out to do when you're going through the grieving process. And it's not something that it, it ends. It's always there. It uh, You learn to live with it. And you learn to manage it. And hopefully, like I'm trying to do, uh, continue to honor my husband and my son um, in a positive way and help others in the process. Well, you said a million different things. <laughs> you know, there's so, <laughs> there's so much there that we can take home. And we need to listen to this interview more than once because it's so inspiring it's uplifting. It definitely is encouraging. It's motivating. It's challenging. And it's also a story. And you have touched our hearts with your story. You have uh, encouraged us to get through whatever it is that we are going through. You have motivated us to do something about our situations and to follow after our dreams and to go for the, you know, no limits, all these things that you shared today, and also the awareness that you are bringing to this audience on sepsis. It's amazing. I had no idea. And I really appreciate that. And we definitely want to get that message out. And I thank, thank you, you so much for sharing from your heart. Just it's exciting to your story is exciting. So it's all the emotions. So thank you so much. Sorry, I had my little breakdown. That's the first one I've had in a while. Um having an interview. Thank you so much for sharing that. And again, thank you so much, Christina. Thank you. For I being, really appreciate it. For being on Never Ever Give Up Hope. Thank you for listening to Never Ever Give Up Hope featuring Carol Graham. Did you know that most people succeed because they are determined to? Quitting was never an option. Carol loves your comments and will respond to each one. So please subscribe and review this podcast. A rating of five stars would be outstanding and appreciated. Remember, if you are still here, there is always hope.